Welcome to Shield of the Republic, a podcast sponsored by the Bulwark and the Miller Center of Public Affairs at the University of Virginia, and dedicated to the proposition articulated by Walter Lippmann during World War II that a strong and balanced foreign policy is the necessary shield of our democratic republic. I'm Eric Edelman, counselor at the Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments, a Bulwark contributor and a non-resident fellow at the Miller Center. Uh, my normal partner in this enterprise, Elliot Cohen, the Robert E. Osgood Professor of Strategy at the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies and the Arlie Burke Chair in Strategy at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, is off vacationing somewhere in the Iberian Peninsula. Poor Elliot. But we have as our very special guest today, former Supreme Allied Commander General uh, Philip Breedlove. Uh, General Breedlove is... Uh, one of our most distinguished, I would say, military strategists. In addition to having been the Supreme Allied Commander, uh, he was the commander of uh, U.S. Air Forces in Europe. He was the vice chief of staff of the Air Force. Um, I first got to know him when he was the uh, vice director of the uh, Strategic Plans Office in the J-5 uh, of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. And he, I was privileged to have him as my wingman in more member, more meetings of the deputies committee during the period from 2006 to 2008 than either he or I would like to remember. Uh, he's now a distinguished professor of practice at the Sam Nunn School at Georgia Tech, uh, of which General Breedlove is a proud graduate. Uh, General Breedlove, welcome to Shield of the Republic. Ambassador Ailman, great to be back with you. Um, I'll add my one cent to that. I, I learned a lot of lessons traveling to the White House with Ambassador Edelman. And I would just point out one funny moment that if you've ever been in Ambassador Edelman's office, you understand that he is a man immensely organized in his head, but sometimes the office doesn't reflect that. That is a fair, a fair statement. I, I think mostly what you know, what you learned driving to the White House with me was how we could run red lights and get away with it in, in Washington, D.C. Um, but, Phil, really, it's great to have you. And I, I wanted to start out um, because of your knowledge and expertise uh, with NATO and European security. And I know you follow, as Elliot and I do, very closely what's going on in Ukraine. What is your sense of the current state of play. You see all these reports about the Russians uh, building up their forces, building up uh, armored forces, 40,000 troops to launch some kind of offensive in the sort of Kupiansk direction. Uh, what's your sense of where, where we are right now? So I think there are legitimate indications that Russia has aspirations of another offensive. Um, I think they're are also some pretty good indications that they have uh, they have run into a buzzsaw in the last uh, month month and a half and have suffered uh, an attritional toll that that is staggering. So um, I do believe there is more that they can call on. Uh, I do not expect that these would be the very best trained and most capable troops but they certainly will probably once again bring mass to the battlefield. 
um, and I don't know how far you want to go down this hole, but as we listen to what Ukraine is talking about, um, they are talking about moving to this sort of active, intelligent defense. They have numerous words they use, but it is, it is a posture on the ground, and we need to talk about the sea in the air, but it is a posture on the ground that would better place them if Russia uh, launches another Bushaw. I mean, we've watched Avdivka, we've, we've watched Bakut, we've watched several places where the Russians have thrown wave after wave of less capable uh, fighters on the battlefield. And um, if that's in the, any indication of what the next one will be like, I think the, the Ukrainians are are happy to, to, to take this new posture. I think in their minds, they really want to be on the offense. And I think that maybe they will think beyond what happens in this next period where they'll be more defensive. But um, uh, Russia has suffered quite the loss. Ukraine has taken some losses too, more manageable numbers. But if you would allow me just one moment to say that while uh, Ukraine did come to a slower place in its advance on the ground, they did get on the left side, or as you Americans would call it, the east side of the river um, uh, in a couple of places. But, but they, you know, their ground advance has largely uh, now become positional and is trans transferring to this defensive mode. But we should acknowledge that Without a single capital asset, I believe that Ukraine is, is, it's a tough word, but may actually be winning the fight for the Northern Black Sea. We see Russia repositioning assets much further in the rear. We see assets that will never move from the piers. They are so severely damaged. The Russians have turned the damaged side against the piers, so you can't see it, but the fact of the matter is some of those ships that are in, in Ukraine are, are, are in Crimea now are static displays, uh, and they will be for a long time. So, so I think that they have made real measurable successes in the Black Sea. The, the story of the air is a little different. Um, Russia is doing a lot of damage with these long-range missiles and long-range drones. They are largely now Iranian or North Korean uh, kit, some Russian kit clearly still. But Russia's still doing a lot of damage with those. But that is the sum total right now of their real capability from the sky. The, the highly vaunted, you and I used to worry about Russian Air Force has failed, I think, the country in, in Ukraine. On the flip side, the Ukrainians started with a very meager air force, and and they have lost a lot of them. But may I just say that I thought I think they fought well, and smart with what they had, and now the real innovation that's happening in the air war in Ukraine is truly what the Ukrainians are doing with smaller, closer drones, first person video. You hear that term a lot now. Ukrainians are um, honestly wreaking havoc along the front line trace of troops 
uh, with these with these this kit, and then in the bigger sense, some of their long range drones to include those at sea are really beginning to give Ukraine some reach. So yes, we have to say that the the Ukrainian uh, offensive came to a halt. I don't like to use the word failed because of the the toll they exact, exacted from Russia, but the air and sea piece has gone, I would think, pretty well for Ukraine. Yeah, I think people throw the word stalemate around in part, I think, because General, Zalu- yeah. General Zaluzhny, of course, kind of called it a stalemate in his economist essay a couple of months ago. Um, and I think that, you know, sort of got this notion going. But as you say, the the battlefield is actually more complex and the attrition that the Ukrainians are uh, wreaking on both uh, men and materiel on the Russian side is a pretty, as you were saying, astounding. You know, around Avdivka, what, you know, what I think you see over the last couple of weeks, tell me if you disagree, but you, you do see the Russians making some, you know, some very small gains but as you were saying, with these astronomical costs attached to them, so you know there's movement, but it's you know movement of you know one or two tree lines at a time. Literally, it's like a hundred meters, two hundred meters, but the cost is just you know so enormous that it does raise the question of even if they launch an offensive, and even as they appear to at least for the moment have a considerable artillery advantage. You see numbers thrown around like five to one. Uh, they still have trouble, you know, moving forward in part because of what you were saying about the FPV drones and, and things like that. Am I wrong there? No, no, you are, I think you're exactly right. May I offer a thought? Uh, you know, people are beginning now to ask, what are the Russians doing? Because the to launch another massive offensive would be, I think, truly uh, a bridge too far. Um, but, but may I offer what is becoming in a thought for me and one or two others. And that is, I think that Mr. Putin and Russia are beginning to realize that if Western support begins to drift in the wrong direction and, and Ukraine has to come to the table or the world begins to force them to come to the, the table, if you looked at Russia's frontline trace right now, it's unmanageable, unmanageable for the long term. Because of the dents and curves in that frontline trace, either side could place artillery that would ha- hold huge swaths of the other at bay and, and at risk. And so I don't know this. This is Phil Breedlove and one or two of my best friends thinking about this. I believe they're beginning to think about how to move that that line, that frontline trace, to put it into a place that is manageable for the long term because they expect that (coughs) the West is going to put Ukraine in a position where they have to give away more land to get peace uh, and Russia wants a frontline trace that is something that is militarily manageable in the out years. Does that make any sense at all? 
I think it does. I also think there's a political calculation here, which is the Russian election is coming up in March. Uh, it looks, I was just reading in the Financial Times before we got on the air that the Central Election Commission is now going to uh, apparently disqualify Mr. Boris Nadezhdin, the opposition candidate whose uh, unlikely and come somewhat hapless candidacy was generating actually a lot of public enthusiasm. So go figure. It turns out that he doesn't have enough signatures to to get on the ballot, despite, you know, photo evidence of people queuing up for, you know, for hours to sign sign up for his uh, petition. So I think there may be an element here as well of Putin wanting a battlefield victory before the election. You know, I think that may be at work as well. I want to kind of uh, plumb your expertise, you know, not only as a former SACUR, but as a former vice chief of staff of, of the Air Force, because there's been a lot of debate about um, the air piece of this. As you say, the Russian Air Force has actually not uh, performed uh, as one might have expected, given the advantages that they had when the war kicked off. Uh, my my some, you know, surmise is that uh, they're less formidable than they look, first of all, because they haven't had a lot of flying time. You know, they're, they're not, you know, not that proficient. Um, and uh, that they uh, thought they would been able, be able to eliminate uh, Ukraine's air defenses, but the Ukrainians were actually very crafty about hiding and disguising those air defenses in the first, uh, first few days of the war and therefore being able to actually uh, you know, hold the Russians at bay. I mean, what, what you see the Russians doing is basically flying in Russian airspace and firing standoff weapons exactly. um, at, at Ukraine. And so the question is, you know, would F-16s have made a difference? You know, I there's a blame game that's been going on. Some of our former colleagues in the Pentagon, I've heard it from them. You know, none of it would have made a difference. Wouldn't have made a difference if we gave them HIMARS earlier wouldn't have made a difference if we gave them more of the cluster attackums. wouldn't have made a difference if we gave them the uh, unitary warhead long range attackums. wouldn't have made a difference if we gave them F-16. Is, is that, what's your sense of that? My sense is that's blame shifting and, you yeah, know. I'm uh, in violent disagreement with almost every one of those things you said. Um, uh, Let's give some real credit due to Jim Stavridis before me. He started something that my headquarters finished. We, he, long before the first attacks in, in 14, um, um, Jim started a, uh, a study of what it would take to bring the Ukrainian military into sort of more NATO compliance and make them a more Western group. And, and frankly, uh, sir, the in fourteen we already knew most of what we're talking about now. What they need to be able to fight modern maneuver warfare, et cetera, et cetera. And we identified way back then, not F-16s. You know, as a SACUR, I couldn't try to sell American kit. I said they needed four plus generation aircraft that can be multi-role and do air defense until it's not required, and then roll into supporting the uh, um, army. Um, and I will tell you that if we had started in 14 training and putting them into some fourth generation airplane, 
You know I love the F-16, having flown it for 24 years. Um, if we had put them into an aircraft and they had arrived at the beginning of this war with a squadron or two of very capable uh, F-16 pilots and F-16s, it would have made a difference. Uh, I, you know, there's a few things in this world I know a little bit about, and that's one of them. Um, and, and frankly, it, it's the same thing. We identified their long-range artillery problems. We identified um, that they needed a better surface-to-air defense, but what we worked with them over the years is how to better use theirs, We're calling it the shell game. The Russians bombed a lot of spots that had nothing sitting on it because they had moved right before uh, the, the war started. They started the shell game with the assets they had. So I, I, couldn't, uh, I couldn't disagree more. If we had just looked at what we already knew, what we already knew they had, and we had worked on it, those things for the 10 years here between these wars, it would have made a difference. They're entitled to their opinion. I'm entitled to mine. And I think that it would have made a difference. May I just say one more thing about the of Russians? So, so we, you know, two things, and you mentioned them both. So I'm just going to pile on your remarks. The Russians like to show the world their capability by buying shiny new kit. And they have some fairly good shiny new kit. They don't have them in numbers, but they have some pretty good shiny new kit. And you said it. They're not flying it enough to be proficient in it. And then the second thing, at the beginning of the war, uh, we in the West, the first thing we think about is suppression of enemy air defenses so that we can begin to build and gain and maintain first local battlefield air superiority and then grow that into larger air superiority or in two or three of our wars to air supremacy at some point. Um, and what we saw at the beginning of this war is Russia is 100% completely incapable of doing seed suppression of enemy air defenses. And a small, relatively unsophisticated Ukrainian uh, network enabled by our intelligence, let's be clear about that, they were able to do this game and held a much superior, quote-unquote, much superior air force at bay. And so uh, we need to remember those lessons. We are already beginning to narrow down the flying time for our pilots. We need to think about what that meant to Russia. And we need to remember that these old axioms were earned in blood, and we've got to be able to do seed. We have to project air power over our forces, and that takes knocking down their defenses. I think Russia failed at both. Yeah, I know. I, I, I agree with you totally. And I found myself, when I heard some of this you know, um, discussion from my colleagues, um, bristling a bit because you know the failure, if you want to call it that, the inability of the Ukrainians to break through these tiered layered defenses, which uh, in part because of our delays in the West of getting equipment to the Ukrainians uh, and training them um, 
you know, we, we were in, in some sense res- responsible for that. And um, we were asking them to do something, you know, combined arms warfare, concentrated at a key point to break through and then divide the Russian forces down in the land bridge there between, you know, Mariupol and Crimea that we would never have done without, you know, air superiority exactly. or air supremacy. Exactly. This, this, I had this discussion with a correspondent just two days ago. They were talking about how, um, well, it seems we wasted money uh, teaching the Ukrainians how to do modern maneuver warfare and uh, because they failed. And I said, they didn't fail. We failed. Let me tell you, just like you laid out, in our services, the first thing we do is intelligence preparation of the battlefield, and then we begin a campaign of suppression of enemy air defenses to establish battlefield air superiority. And everything in modern maneuver warfare relies on that. Think back, ask someone sometimes, do you remember how much stuff we piled up in the desert south of Kuwait before we went into Kuwait? Could we have done that if the Iraqi Air Force could have bombed it? Not only no, but you know what? No, you know? And so we did an extraordinary logistics buildup because we had air supremacy by that time. And we knew that we could store in the open open all this kit to go forward. Everything we do in the West starts first with air superiority over our troops. As we're having this discussion, uh, the Congress is considering uh, a supplemental uh, bill uh, to provide a, a couple of things, additional aid to Ukraine, some additional aid to our uh, Israeli friends as they are uh, pursuing a destruction of Hamas in Gaza, and some additional defense capability in the Indo-Pacific as well as part of this, all wrapped up together with uh, an effort to strengthen um, the security of our own border uh, in the South, which is obviously a very big issue and a very real issue. Right now, the prospects for the supplemental uh, don't look uh, great. Um, we've got the House of Representatives saying that um, they won't even take the bill up, that it's dead on arrival, as the Speaker uh, has said. He said it was the bill that actually emerged from all these negotiations was worse than he anticipated, although I don't... I don't know how it could have been worse because he said it was going to be dead on arrival before it even emerged. Anyway, I don't want to drag you into the political thicket, but if if this assistance doesn't um, get passed, I mean, I noticed one of the things in the bill is uh, a big chunk of money to help the Department of Defense get uh, production of 155 artillery rounds up to the 100,000 level that Bill LaPlante, the undersecretary for acquisition is trying to get it to with our defense industry uh, partners. Uh, That's, of course, you know, one way to help solve this problem of the imbalance between Russian and Ukrainian artillery ammunition magazines um, and the depth uh, thereof. Without this supplemental, what is your sense of what the impact will be on, on the battlefield we've just been discussing? So I'd like to start the answer with a 20-second vignette, and that is that I'm often asked, uh, how is this war going to end? And my answer has surprised some and has uh, 
I wouldn't say infuriated, but made some angry because I say it every time. And that is this war is going to end exactly like Western policymakers want it to end. Western policy will drive the end of this war. If we withdraw the funding from Ukraine, Ukraine will fight valiantly. Tens of thousands of Ukrainians will die and Russia will subjugate Ukraine. If we do nothing different than we're doing now, and this is very critical, I'm not being critical of a person, but I'm being critical of a policy. I believe our policy right now is to give Ukraine enough to remain viable on the battlefield, but not, not enough to win. Our nation's leaders right now, I believe, are incapable of mentally dealing with a defeated Russia or a defeated Putin and what that might entail. And so we have self-deterred and we are not giving Ukraine what it needs to lend. So if we stay in this position over time, Ukraine will come to a culminating point or the West will tire and stop supplying and you get the same result as number one, Russia will win and subjugate the rest of Ukraine. Now, my third one is bold, but I believe it. And that is, if we give Ukraine what they need to win, um, they'll win. And people ask me, okay, well, what is it? And they want a silver bullet. It's the F-16, or it's this, or it's that. And I've, and I, I basically answer the same way every time now. If you give Ukraine what the United States of, of America would take to the battlefield if this was our fight, give them that, they will win. You know, airplanes and SAMs to establish battlefield air superiority, long-range strike, and the policy to strike Russia before it can bring all this kit to bear. That's one of the big problems that you didn't mention a minute ago when, you know, Russia's got all this stuff that they're piled up for this offensive, they say, and it's sitting there. And we forbid Ukraine from shooting in there with our kit to destroy it. We would be striking that before it came across the border. We would be striking it on all the lines of communications. And we forbid Ukraine from doing that. So I just say one more time, this war will end exactly how Western policymakers decide it will end. Um, and in the short term, to your question, if we begin now to pull down that support, um, the first impact is on the soldiers on the battlefield of Ukraine. They're looking up for their cover, okay? And they start to see it erode. Now, I applaud the EU for its, uh, its, its uh, promise to support, I think it was 50 billion, billion euro. Um, uh, this is good, but if the United States starts pulling back, donors from around the world will start to pull back. And then, as I said, we end up with option one, as I described it before. This is not a good place to be. We need to sort this out. You talk to people on the Hill. I won't use any names, but they, you know, they say, hey, this is a tool. Right now we're using this tool to get change on the border. Once we hit the change on the border, we'll get back to business. Well, the question is, how long does that take? And what is the impact on Ukraine in the meantime? And, and that's something that I think history may judge us harshly for.
Yeah, I quite I quite agree. Um, one of the things that has inhibited the Biden administration from um, providing as much stuff as soon as it was needed uh, and titrating out, you know, this assistance in small dribs and drabs. I mean, one example of that is the uh, when we finally gave the Ukrainians a few months ago, uh, you know, some cluster munitions variant of the um, Attackum missile, not not the long range right. one, but the sh- shorter range one with the cluster munitions. Those munitions were used very effectively by the Ukrainians to kill a lot of Ka-52 helicopters, which had been one of the rotary wing assets the Russians had used to help thwart the uh, land advance by the U- Ukrainians uh, in the south in Zaporizhia. So, you know, shame on us, I think, for having done that. I mean, by the way, m- most I've said this on the podcast before, but most of those uh, cluster variant of the Attackum uh, violate the U.S. policy for uh, cluster munitions. They've got a dud rate of over 3%. So the odds that we would actually use them, we would have to be really in extremis. I don't think we would have ever used those things. So, you know, it'll cost us more to demilitarize them than it will to send them to the Ukrainians. And uh, so it drives me crazy. But and I'm told, sir, that we have almost a thousand rounds of the very first batches of the high explosive unitary warhead that you described that we're going to end up demilling. And why aren't we giving those to Ukraine? Those are going to be, by the way replaced by the PRISM missile, which is in development now soon anyway. So it wouldn't be giving away any qualitative U.S. military advantage. But to your point earlier, uh, General Breedlove, uh, about the hesitation to provide Ukraine with the ability to strike along its own border inside Russia, where Russia is staging military equipment and munitions in order to attack Ukraine. The the Ukrainians have been, you know, essentially forbidden to use our kit to do that. I think the argument, I think it's wrongheaded, but it's an escalation uh, management argument, which is if we give them kit they strike Russian territory with, that will allow Putin to say, you know, that uh, he's at war with NATO rather than with Ukraine. But if you watch Russian television and if you listen to what Putin says, they're already, and what Shoigu and Gerasimov, when he was appearing on TV, although he hasn't appeared for about a month, I'm not sure where he is, but um, but uh, if you listen to that, they're all saying that they're at war with NATO anyway. Exactly. So, you know, I, you know, I don't see, frankly, what the benefit is of holding back. I, I could see that you would say, don't hit Moscow, don't hit you know, downtown St. Petersburg, but why you would, you know, be so concerned about this, particularly given the fact that at each turn, we were told that, you know, providing M1 Abrams tanks would be a red line for Russia. We were told that providing them with long range artillery, the high Mars system would be a a red line for Russia. We're told F-16s would be a red line for Russia. All these things have been given to Ukraine and you know nothing nothing has changed in terms of the fight so I, you know am I wrong to think that this is a pretext rather than a, a real reason I'm with you and I, I would also add a couple other lines of logic here when we have given them some of these newer weapons 
uh, we gave them strict instructions about what not to do with them. They have been incredibly compliant. Uh, they know they can't bite the hand that feeds. Um, I think we've had one U.S. Humvee drive in up there in Belarus and was a part of an attack up there, and and then we got that sorted out. But lar- to the largest, almost 100% case, the Ukrainians have followed the restrictions that we've given them with these missiles. But I think it's just preposterous. I tell people all the time, if, you know, uh, Secretary Austin, as you remember, was my peer when I was the SACUR, he was a CENTCOM commander. And if we'd have told uh, General Lloyd Austin that he is going to have to deal with strikes from his enemy coming from nearly 300 degrees around into the CENTCOM AOR, but he couldn't shoot back at them with his long-range artillery. His head would have exploded, okay? And that's what we've told Ukraine. You are Roger Federer, and you're going to receive serve for the entire French Open because we're not going to allow you to serve back. And this is preposterous. And so I think that developing a, a policy under which Ukraine could use these weapons and the types of targets they could strike, you would see just the same discipline that they used in firing these uh, cluster um, attackums, the short-range attackums. And, and uh, I, I just really have a, a hard time here. I think, again, we, we have self-deterred in, in uh, the options that would give Ukraine the ability to do significant damage because we're afraid of what that significant damage would mean uh, in a policy sense. You mentioned the European assistance, and I agree with you. I'm, I'm, you know, very grateful to our European colleagues. First of all, for getting around the uh, blockage that um, the Hungarians under um, under Orban had um, imposed on assistance from the EU, they seem to have, you know, navigated that particular uh, challenge. But you know, we were talking earlier about the difficulty Bill LaPlante is having getting the U.S. defense industrial base to the point where it can produce 100,000 rounds a month. You know, you know, the Ukrainians were firing six, but you know, 6,000 a day um, back in the summer when they um, had a steady, you know, flow of munitions. The Europeans have promised uh, a million rounds of ammunition, but they're way behind in part because their defense industrial base uh, is in even worse shape than ours and suffering from even longer decades of uh, neglect um, you know, than ours has been. Um, what do you think the, you know, assuming we don't get the supplemental, what, what is your judgment about the degree to which Europeans can step up and, and fill the gap? I mean, you, you said, rightly in my view, that if we don't, you know, if we're not going to do this, ultimately there will be a decline in European support. I do think there could be an initial effort by the Europeans to fill the gap, but what's what's your sense of how well they will be able to do it? So I think there's good news and there's bad news here. The the good news is that I believe we've seen uh, a true and I believe somewhat lasting change of heart, change of approach by the Europeans. I don't know if you've seen the charts, but in a per capita by GDP basis, uh, 
we're like 14th on the list of, of donators these days. And, and I believe now that the sum total of Europe is now eclipsed U.S. giving. So, so we're, we're seeing a changing here that is good. Um, but um, that industrial piece, there are actually some nations who have a little bit more of a command connection between their government and their, their national companies such that they're a little quicker to react than we are in our paradigm in the United States. Um, and, and even in there, we're seeing some goodness. But the scale that Europe can offer right now is not going to answer the call. Frankly, the scale in America is not going to answer the call until we figure out how to build excess capacity under the current uh, FARs and so forth. We, we've got a ways to go as well. So um, while I am happy as to the change of direction of the Europeans, I'm not sanguine that they're going to be able to create the capacity. We would have a problem creating the same capacities. Yeah, the FARs being the Federal Acquisition Regulations. Oh, I'm sorry. Which, sorry. Now, that's okay. I just wanted to let our listeners you know, know what we're talking about. But, but yeah, I mean, those are regulations and those are processes and procedures that are, you know, uh, finely tuned uh, for, you know, producing m- military goods in peacetime. But, you know, we're, we're, we're a nation right now with, you know, uh, with associated um, friends who are fighting two active wars. So, uh, and, and we're staring at the prospect of a, of a third, which might involve us directly in the Indo-Pacific. And so the idea that we can just continue to meander along under these sort of, you know, peacetime processes, I think is. And if I could, I think we need to learn a lesson for the future. And that is um, we, we have a system now that will literally punish a manufacturer if they use money from a contract to create excess capacity. And that all happened for reasons that we know, you know, there are some guys that did bad things in the past and we created these FARs and others that closely control that. We have to go back and rethink how do we incentivize industry to create and maintain a certain amount of excess capacity. And sometimes it's not about the assembly line. It's about the people, the skilled labor that work on the assembly line. And so... um, I just, I just throw out there that I think when we get around to the lessons learned of this period we're in now, we have got to rethink what we do in our military, industrial, governmental uh, arrangements so that we are not flat-footed the next time we need it. Yeah. If you talk to anybody in industry, they will tell you, you know, basically two things. One is they need to be able to uh, have some sense that before they expand the physical plant to produce these things, that there's going to be a steady demand signal because they don't want to invest a lot of money pouring concrete and building facilities uh, and then get told, oh yeah, well, this was just a one-year supplemental. And after that, you know, that's the end of the road. And the other is what you were pointing to, General Breedlove, which is a big, big obstacle, probably the longest pole in the tent for industry, which is bringing on the skilled 
skilled labor. I mean, we have a shortage of, you know, uh, welders and electricians. And oh, by the way, there is in the um, in this supplemental uh, legislation, there is money to help um, build up our submarine industrial base so that we can uh, actually meet the obligations we've undertaken under AUKUS uh, to, you know, help our Australian and UK uh, allies out. But I, I wonder if we could turn for a moment from your, you know, perspective as a former Supreme Allied Commander in Europe, what do you see as the potential consequences going forward of a defeat? I mean, you were, you said in the long run, if we don't step up, you know, Russia will end up dominating uh, Ukraine. What are the consequences for European security? And what do you see as the knock-on consequences more broadly uh, in the rest of the world? So this is a very uh, complicated problem. Um, And I'm going to say it's part of the problem starts in that I do not believe that our current uh, leadership in Washington has explained to America why Ukraine counts, why it's important that Ukraine is a functioning part of society into the future. Most, you know, I love our country. I come from a place we call the Redneck Riviera. You know, we got a lot of people out there that don't, uh, couldn't put their finger on Crimea on a map and don't understand the contributions of Ukraine to the world. Some got a taste of it when the food, when the grain supply slowed down with what happened to the food supplies and the cost of things started going up big time. Uh, Oh my God, I didn't realize Ukraine had such an impact. Very few people understand that almost every medium earth orbit or high earth orbit or moonshot we did for several decades flew on Ukrainian rocket motors. And so there, there is all manner of things that people don't understand that Ukraine is a highly technical, functioning part of the European economy. The European economy is still almost 50% of our GDP. Their economy is important to us. And isolationism is not going to fix that problem. We have to remain connected. And so we have to start off by explaining to Americans why Ukraine counts. And for all those reasons, if Ukraine goes back to Russia, so so how fast do you think rebuilding in Ukraine is going to happen if Russia is running the show? How fast do you think all those hundreds of thousands of mines that Russia has put into the field will come out. They salted large swaths of agricultural land. There are mines all over the battlefields and and the shaping of the battlefields out there. And even if the whole Western world focuses on that, um, um, it's going to take a long time. But with the economy Russia has and its capability now, how fast is that going to happen? Are they going to build a BRICS community that's going to come in and invest in Ukraine and and pick up the mines and so forth? So, uh, you know, a defeat to me means a loss of an important industrial partner, 
a loss of an incredible agricultural partner. And frankly, uh, for a military person, a loss of a geostrategic important part of the world in how uh, Europe defends itself into the future. Sir, I know you read those two articles that Mr. Putin gave us to sign. I think he actually called them treaties at the beginning of the war, about eight or nine days before the war started. If you read those papers, it is very clear that Ukraine is the start of this campaign. It is much bigger than in Ukraine. And I don't know if you agree with me or not, but the gray zone battle going on in Georgia right now is pretty evident what Russia is trying to do. And I recently spent time with the foreign minister of Moldova and what's going on in that country is pretty straightforward. So Ukraine is not only, it's bigger than Ukraine, but it's already functioning in a, in a non kinetic way in two other countries. And so in the future, without Ukraine as a part of a bulwark, whether it's in EU and NATO or not, if it is Russian, it's a big problem in that sense. So I think they're literally all three of those venues is a loss of Ukraine is a huge problem. No, I, I completely agree. If you go back and look at um, those documents that uh, Sergei Lavrov gave to Tony Blinken, they basically call for uh, a rollback of all of NATO enlargement going back to 1997 exactly. and, uh, and, and creating essentially a privileged sphere of influence for Russia in Central uh, and, and Eastern Europe. And, I, you know, one thing that worries me is that I don't think Americans appreciate that as much as you and I have discussed the losses Russia has taken, and they've been really quite, you know, astonishing in terms of, you know, 300,000 casualties. I mean, uh, you know, I think you and I would have said, okay, that, you know, Russians will say basta, you know, we've had enough at that point. But what what is striking to me is that Putin has been successful in putting Russia's economy on a completely war footing you know, uh, 24-7, three shifts a day of defense production. Uh, the budget's now 40% devoted to defense. Um, it's uh, producing a lot of stuff. I mean, it's not, you know, great quality stuff. It's not, notwithstanding what Putin said recently about how great Russian stuff is. I mean, it's not as good as our stuff, but it's sufficient you know, to the task. And, you know, if they're dealing with something that is less um, challenging than biting off a kind of thousand mile front in in Ukraine, uh, which is, as you were saying earlier, has stretched Russian forces very thin. By the way, we had, we had uh, an Australian historian, David Stahl, who has written a number of histories of the Eastern Front you know, had had the Russians actually gone back and studied their own military history, they might have realized they were putting themselves in the same position the Wehrmacht was in when it invaded the Soviet Union in 1941. But be that as it may, I worry that if you get them concentrating their forces uh, in the Baltics, say, where they have interior lines of communication, where they have uh, potentially, you know, some fifth column assets they could draw on, 
where they can concentrate their forces uh, in places that are very geographically compact, unlike Ukraine, that in four or five years, you know, they can, you know, reconstitute and provide a very, very serious threat to our, you know, NATO treaty allies. And and then we'll really be up against the escalation uh, dynamic because we'll be wrestling with an Article 5 situation. I don't know if you agree with that. No, I do. I, I would, I, and I kind of also add to that, to that line of thought that war is not a business. Okay. It's not a business, but if we examine our investment to date, most people say about four and a half percent of one year of DOD budget and the impact that the Ukrainians have made on the Russian military for that for that investment, it's it's staggering. But none of that obviates what you talked about, which is Russia can still, as you, you know, Germany, you gotta love it, uh, interior lines, they, can, they still are set to be able to rapidly assemble force, even if they are secondary level forces and lesser trained, uh, mass has its own beauty, doesn't, especially against a Baltic target. And so, they are not out of the game, no matter how badly they've been uh, they've been hammered during this war so far, and it it bears us. Uh, I fear that at some point here, uh, people feel that Ukraine will have to go to the table, give away more Ukrainian lives and more Ukrainian land for our safety. And then we all get back to how do we enjoy our peace dividends, slow down all this concern. We need to be very laser focused on uh, there is a lot of work that remains to be done by the problems that have been exposed by this conflict. And if we don't have a commission or someone or NATO or EU that is focused on we got a punch list now that cannot be dropped because we've stopped, quote unquote, the conflict. And I would ask you if you really believe if we stopped this month, if that's the last time Russia goes across a line in Ukraine. We will be hearing from our Russian friends again, I'm afraid. It's uh, the lesson I've drawn from all of this. Um, we have just a few minutes uh, General Breedlove, before we wrap up, and I, I do want to ask you uh, if you would, you know, maybe share some thoughts with us. Uh, Israel used to be in the uh, SACIR's uh, area of responsibility. It's now been transferred over to CENTCOM, which probably makes a little bit more sense. But you you know the Israeli military, you know the IDF, you know the commanders, you know, and you know what they're up against because you spent a lot of your career, as I did mine, uh, in the post 9-11 wars against uh, terrorist organizations like uh, Hamas. Um, what's your sense of how of how it's going? I mean, this has been a, I mean, uh, Elliot was in Israel a couple of um, months ago and uh, reported back to our listeners about the incredible trauma that Israeli society suffered on October 7th, the equivalent of roughly about, if it were as if 40,000 Americans had been killed on 9-11 rather than 3,000. What's your sense of how it's going and how do you think uh, that conflict ends? 
This is probably the worst conundrum that the leadership of Israel has ever faced. Um, uh, you know the very senior leadership better than I, but Benny Gantz and those guys who I worked with, I know them as extremely well. And I can't imagine facing what they're facing, which is they've got a real enemy that they've got to deal with. And that real enemy has lashed out at them and proven that they can still completely uh, um, upend security inside of Israel. And so they've got that problem to deal with. But the, the other side of the coin is that the world uh, is moving to a position where uh, Israel will begin to lose support, I think, in a drastic way if, if they, and I will just use the pronoun we, don't uh, uh, find a, a better solution fast. And so uh, uh, I, just one more minute of preparation for the story. I, I remember the first time I was taken up on the Golan Heights and looked at the problem through that huge uh, telescope. You know, they got up there at OP-1. And I remember the first time I flew my F-16 over the Dead Sea. And I'm looking at Jordan and I'm looking at the coastline. And I really began to understand what Israel calls a lack of strategic depth. Their strategic issue is more acute than I think any country in the world when it comes to geography. And so... Um, um, this is all to prepare you for what I think is, is tough words, but I believe Israel's got to be allowed to eliminate the issue. But I think it needs to happen quickly because right now, in the grand scheme of things, the damage that is being done to Israel in the eyes of the world is going to be a real problem in the future. Hard to disagree with that. I'm delighted to have had... Uh... General Phil Breedlove as our special guest today on uh, Shield of the Republic. Uh, we didn't even get to the Indo-Pacific, uh, General Breedlove, but um, there's a lot going on in the world. And so um, I hope we can have you back, hopefully have you back when uh, Elliot is, you know, not um, not uh, touristing around some of the nicer, you know, garden spots of Europe. Um, and uh, thank you for joining us today on Shield of the Republic. Great to be on with you again, sir.